You can open to Matthew chapter 23. As I was explaining to you, the outline is on the screen once again. And we're looking at the middle section right now, Perdition of the Hypocrites, where Jesus is talking about, um, he says, Woe unto you, Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites. So before we get into that, let's pray. And then we'll concentrate on the scripture. Father, thank you for this evening, this opportunity to once again open the word of God. Lord, we trust not our ability with technology. We trust not our ability with uh, uh, our own intellect and how we explain things or understand things. We trust that the Spirit of God needs to move and open our eyes and help us, Lord, to see exactly why you said these things the way you did. Lord, let the weight of your words sink deep in our hearts and ground us and act as an anchor for our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to take the, uh, the outline down just now. But if you need any of this information, you guys, please feel free to let me know. Uh, and, and please feel free to make use of the comment section. I, I will try to let my eyes wander over there every now and then, but since I can't see your faces, right, it's so much easier when we're in a classroom. I can, I can see maybe if a point has, has missed its mark. I um, you know, will often have people ask questions as we go or especially at the end of class, and I really do miss that interactiveness. So please feel free, guys, to make use of the chat section here. Um, Maybe this can be a little less formal than, than it's been in the past. And uh, please feel free. Let me know how we can make this experience better. All right, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 16. Watch this. Watch this, guys. I hope this works. Unlike what I told you earlier, let's see if this works. Here we go. Boom. Okay, now let me know. I know there's a bit of a lag, but let me know if you can see the verses now next to you. And I think I'm still in the screen. There, there I am. I see myself over there. Okay, I think that's working. So I'm, I'm not going to leave this up the whole time, but just so that you can see the verses. Now, please, I want you to have your Bibles open. You need to be marking things, flipping through the Bible. You need to get used to that. But I understand that some of you, because we're doing this via live stream, you may not have access to a Bible right there in front of you. So I'm putting the verses on the screen just for the time being. Verse 16, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, where are we at? Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Uh, a debtor is to say he is bound. Now he has to do it. So the Pharisees had a thing that if, if, you, if you came to them and said, I, I made this vow, but I, I swore by the temple, but I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, and they would say, okay, well, if you swore by the gold, then you're bound to do it. You have to do it. But if you only swore by the temple and not the gold, then it wasn't as serious a vow. You're free. You're loosed from the debt of that vow you made. You don't have to follow through and, and pay for that, which obviously there's two issues here. Number one, we've already talked about it back in Matthew 5. Jesus mentioned how they should not be making these oaths. They should not be swearing at all. Their yea should be yea, their nay should be nay. So that's mistake number one. Mistake number two is thinking that the gold is more important than the temple, right? So there, there are two issues that need to be dealt with here. He has called them blind guides because they are making people think that the gold is what sanctifies the temple. The gold is the special part about this building. And furthermore, they are encouraging, they are affirming the idea that making these oaths and swearing by heaven or by the temple or, or by such things, by the hairs of your head, that these oaths are okay and that they're good. So two mistakes are being made. Verse 17, Jesus points this out. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? Well, Jesus is addressing mistake number two. He is going to address mistake number one in just a few verses, how they are forgetting that these oaths are, are not supposed to be made, that God is the one that you're answering to. He's the one that makes the thing special. So he's going to deal with these mistakes one step at a time. But for now, he's pointing out, guys, where is your emphasis? You are emphasizing the gold instead of the temple. And that's what you're going to see for the next few verses is that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grossly out of balance with what they emphasized. Verse number 18, he, before he 
gets into a full explanation, he's going to tie this in with another mistake that they were making. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon the altar, uh, that is upon it, rather, he is guilty. So this is the same, the same problem, right? Same principle is going to apply, but instead of the temple, now we're talking about the altar. Verse 19, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Well, obviously, the altar is built unto God. You're offering something unto God. The temple is a building where you go to worship God. God's presence can be found there. So what's special about it is the God to whom it is built and for whom it is built. Not by the size of the sacrifice you brought and how impressive that looks to men or how beautifully adorned the building was because the, the temple, as it had been rebuilt by Herod, was a magnificent structure and it was gorgeously adorned. But they were putting the emphasis on all of these outward, let's call it window dressings, right? Verse 20, Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. So guys, recognize that the altar, that's the foundation of this, this event, this thing you're doing. The gift is a secondary of secondary importance. Verse 21, And whosoever shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. Now keep this point in the back of your mind because Jesus is going to come back to the house, the temple that the Jews were making such a big deal of. These guys are swearing by the temple and in so doing, they are also invoking the temple to whom the God was built. They didn't realize that. They were just trying to emphasize the building itself. Don't a lot of people, even in today's, uh, today's church, right? It's about the beautiful buildings. It's about the outward adorning. This is a great lesson, I think, in ministry and preaching where our emphasis should be. Let's get to the heart of the matter. We're going to see this in just a few verses, how the Pharisees were adorning the outward and not paying any attention to the inward man. And I think the same thing holds true today. We overemphasize small issues, right? The temple is not a it's not useless. It's not a bad thing. The altar is not a bad thing. But let's get to the heart of it. What makes the temple and the altar important? It's the God to whom and for whom it's built. That's what you've got to keep in, in mind when you're approaching these things. So today you hear a lot of preaching about various standards, right? You got to have your hair cut right. You got to dress a certain way. And, you know, women shouldn't wear this and should wear that. And you, you know, a lot of these window dressing things, people spend more time talking about the music of a church. Right? rather than the God to whom you're singing. Now, I don't think it's a complete waste of time to talk about some of these smaller issues. They need to be addressed. There are things in the Bible that, that touches on those things, but it shouldn't be the point of emphasis. We shouldn't start to think that because somebody dresses right, they have a, a correct walk with God. That's, that's completely out of balance. Verse 22, he takes it another step, and he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. So you might remember back in chapter five, we made mention of this, how the Jews were, it was very well known at this time to make these kind of oaths, to say, I swear by the throne of God. I swear by his habitation, speaking about either heaven or the, uh, the, the temple. Uh, they would swear by the hair of their head. So Jesus now, he's addressing, he addressed mistake number two. That is, guys, your logic isn't, isn't uh, matching up here. It's not working. What's greater, the altar or the gift? What's greater, the temple or the gold? So he addresses that. And then by the way, when you're making these oaths, you're bringing God into the picture as well. It's not just the temple. It's not just heaven. So you need to consider who's listening, who you're making these vows for. So verse 23, woe unto you, another Another issue now arises. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Let me see. I think I'm past that in this. Let me just move this down a little bit so you can see that. All right. I think I told you I wouldn't leave that up, and now it looks like I'm just leaving that up. So let's just see how long we need to leave that up. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. 
Now, it was a common practice back in, in these days that they would take mint leaves and count them out. They would count nine for themselves, one for the Lord. Nine for themselves, one for the Lord. They would take the anise and the cumin, which is like powder substances, and weigh them out and make sure that 10% went to God and they would keep the 90% for them. So these are very small things that they're handling here. Mint, anise, cumin, but they were very conscious of it. They were very particular, made sure that it was given correctly. And by the way, Jesus didn't rebuke them for doing that, as you can see at the end of the verse these ought you to have done. So fine, you want to tithe the small things? Great, help yourself. But not at the expense of what's more important. Don't get the idea that because you've zeroed in, zoomed in on this small, rather non-important issue, that somehow now you're excluded from these weightier matters, the things that really matter to the Lord. By the way, if I can slip it in, don't start to think that because I've taken care of the weightier matters, I can just let the small things slide, right? We, we need to be conscious of the fact that God wants us to put the correct emphasis on the correct issues, right? Put heavy emphasis on the big issues. Put small emphasis on small issues. So you may not want to press as hard on those smaller things, but you still need to touch on them when it's appropriate, and again, this is all back in Matthew 5. We, we touched on the greater things of the law, the least things of the law. They are all important to a certain extent. And it's, it's crucial for us to recognize where God puts the emphasis. Take your Bibles. Come to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. And I'm going to put the... This is going to be our attendance code for the evening. I think I can leave it there for now. Let me know, does that window... Does that uh, window help to have to have the verses up there? Is that of any use to anyone? If not, I won't bother with it. Just thought I'd give it a try. Um, Micah, let's come to Micah chapter six. Now, here I'm wanting to show you uh, the weightier matters of the law: judgment, mercy, faith. Micah chapter six. Now, throughout the Old Testament, right when you get into the Torah, you have all of the law, six hundred and thirteen of them. But then when you get into the Psalms, um, you see how the list gets abbreviated. You get into the book of Isaiah. Again, abbreviated lists continue to appear. Ezekiel does this in chapter 18 of his book. But in Micah, you also have an abbreviated list of the weightier matters of the law. Let's begin reading in verse 7. Micah 6 verse 7. He says here, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Well, God was, right? It was good to bring sacrifices. God did lay out a sacrificial system. But is, was that the main emphasis? Was that where, is that the only thing the Jews needed to focus on? Verse 8, he shows us what's, what's weightier, what's more important. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly. Now that'll be the judgment that we've read about in Matthew 23. And to love mercy, which of course is exactly what he'd mentioned, and to walk humbly with thy God. You said, but back in Matthew 23, he said, judgment, mercy, faith. So where do we find the faith in this? Well, verse 8, he hath showed thee, O man. That's God revealing something to mankind, in this case, to the nation of Israel. And that revelation is what constitutes our faith. We believe what God has revealed, the words of God. All right, so come back to Matthew chapter 23. So we don't have to ignore the smaller things. Find a touch on them. Find to emphasize them when they need emphasis. But to think that because you have given the proper amount of mint leaves, now you're okay with God. And not to put any time and effort into these more important matters. Whew, horrible spiritual mistake. We, again, we do that still today. People think, well, I go to church and I put my money in the plate. I'm good. I'm square with God. But wow, Monday through Saturday, you live like the world, talk like the world, 
You run your business like the world. Your home is completely out of sorts. Your heart is hardened towards the things of God. Pitching up Sunday and throwing the right amount of money into the plate does not justify that type of life. That's what he's rebuking the Pharisees for. Verse 24, Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, there is a proper Afrikaans word. I've always said chocha for gnat, but somebody corrected me on that. Maybe somebody can leave it in the comments. There's a proper word for gnat. Um, but I think we're all familiar at least with what this is. Even if you want to think of it as a chocha, I don't think it's going to hurt you too bad. But in, the, in these days, what the Pharisees and scribes and their like-minded brethren were doing is they went back to the Torah and there was a law in the book of Leviticus that said the Jews could not eat any unclean animals, which included flying, creeping things. So they said if, if a chocha, if a gnat, somebody help me, the verses is good, I say yeah. Okay, that's good to know. Then we'll flip back to that now. If it's helpful, then we'll leave it up there for now. Yeah, you know... I agree. I kind of like it up there for the for the few people that would need it. But guys, please don't abuse it, right? It's really good to be flipping back into your Bible, you know, uh, finding the book of Micah, going to these verses. It really does help it to, to sink in. And um, come a time when you're going to need to show this to somebody else. It's going to be real helpful that you've actually paged to it yourself. But anyway, I'll leave that between you and the Lord, how you use that. All right, so what they were doing is any chocha, any bug, any gnat that would fly over a, a, a flagon or any vessel where they had wine or any kind of juice or water or whatever, the Jews, before they would drink of that liquid, they would run it through a, a small mesh net of some sort. They'd strain the liquid because they were afraid that a hoha had flown over and flown into the, to the wine or to the juice and they were scared that if they drank it and accidentally consumed a gnat that had fallen into the liquid, then they would be guilty of having ingested and eaten an unclean animal. And if you've ingested an unclean animal, you are not only, you're bringing the curse of God upon yourself. They would literally excommunicate members of the Jewish community if they found out that they had eaten one of these gnats. So they were, this first part of the verse, verse 24, is literal. They were straining at a gnat, trying to get it out of the liquid. And then the second part, I think, is more metaphorical or parabolic. Swallow a camel. I don't think they were literally swallowing camels, right? But you can easily see the point that Jesus is making. By the way, a camel is still an unclean animal, right? but it's a much bigger one. So you see the point Jesus is making. You guys are working hard to get the smallest, least thing right. But then when it comes to the big things, the weightier matters, the camels of the law, you guys are messing that up. And thus, they are bringing this uncleanness upon themselves, right? Because a camel is still an unclean thing. By not taking care of the weightier matters, they are guilty of that massive uncleanness in their lives. All right, uh, verse number 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Now, this Jesus is not forbidding the cleansing of the exterior. What he's rebuking here is the hypocrisy of only having a clean exterior. So if I can say it like this, you want to first cleanse that which is within. And once the heart gets clean and right with God, that will naturally work its way out, which is, you might remember the other day, Francois covered this with you in Philippians chapter two, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it first needs to take root down in your heart. And then if the heart is 1 Peter 3.15, if you have sanctified the Lord God in your heart, that's the command, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, then that godliness, that divine nature will work itself out. I want to say naturally, but it will be the next step. It'll be the fruit 
that is born by having the correct root. If you start to try to cleanse yourself from the outside working in, let me stop these bad habits, let me clean up my environment, all of that's good. And you can do that while you're working on your heart. But the danger is to think, okay, the outside's clean, that's enough. That, that just makes you a Pharisee. Um, the extortion. Now, what, what, what is extortion? That's the practice of obtaining things through force or threats. Now, we can think of this as holding the gun to somebody's head, you know, or threatening to blackmail them, something like that. Corruption, I think that would fall into uh, extortion to some extent. But you can do this spiritually as well. You can tell people, if you don't follow all of our rules, then we are threatening to throw you out of the synagogue or out of the church, right? Whereas God never made such laws. If you're just making up these traditions and then trying to enforce them on the people, that's extortion. You're causing them to give more or do more, and you're making up these threats, but, and very real threats, things that they would do, but, but based only on man-made tradition. And then the next thing, excess. They were full of extortion and excess. Excess, as you can imagine, is a lack of constraints, which means they would indulge any of their lusts as often as they wanted to. So this shows us something interesting about the Pharisees. Now, again, not every single one of them, but as a group, this is what they were guilty of. They would preach one thing. But then in their private lives, as long as nobody would see them do it, they would practice all sorts of lasciviousness, lustful living. Uh, they would just put on a good show for the people. Now, verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. So I, I've just been talking about that. First work on what's inside, and then that's naturally going to take care of what's outside. Verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Let me make sure that I'm still... I'm going to try to keep up with the verses. You guys feel free to remind me in case I don't uh, keep up with that. You know I'm not great at this. All right, so verse 27, it's, he's getting across the same point. However, he's using a different illustration. So rather than a cup and a platter, now he's talking about a grave, which I, I think this, this illustration is even stronger, right? The first one makes the point clear, but this one really drives it home. Because when you look at a grave, you think, man, something... we. A grave carries with it a lot of meaning. You think of the person who's passed away, that person now is done, finished, no more opportunities. They are no good to the physical world in their current state, right? In, into the present world. They, they have no bearing on it now, in their condition. They can't do anything about it. Now take that and, and apply it spiritually. A person who is, whose righteousness is only outward, they have nothing inside actually working for them then they are of no use to this present world, not in that condition. A grave offers comfort and consolation and closure for the people, uh, the loved ones that have been left behind, right? It offers a level of comfort. It does, and closure. But again, apply that to the spiritual world. When we see this outward ritualistic religious behavior, Right? It might make us feel comfortable. Oh, yes, I grew up like this. I've seen people do this. We go to church. We go through the motions. We sing the songs. We say the amens. We go home. Ah, oh, I feel better now. Bit of closure. It soothes the conscience to a certain extent. So I think this illustration can really, well, it, it can preach. It really can. It, it, it can take you a ways into, under, uh, take you quite a, quite a distance into understanding this point. Now, let's look at it piece by piece. You're like unto whited sepulchers. So they would paint the headstone, very, make it very beautiful, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So nothing but death inside. No connection with God. Right? God is, is life. He's the source of life. So no connection with God. Inside, just dead, numb, seared conscience, dead to the things of God. But outwardly, and you know, people come by, put 
flowers on the grave and write beautiful things. We'll never forget you. Outwardly, it looks good. Inwardly, nothing's going on. Verse 28, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So these are some very strong statements. And again, I'll say this. I said it again last week, but let me say it now. It looks as if the way he's saying this, that they are standing there and that he's telling this to them. But you can imagine how, how heavy these words must have hit them. As best I can tell, this is the last time Jesus is, uh, he addresses the public in such a fashion, right? After this, everything gets private between him and his disciples. So this is Jesus telling the Pharisees and scribes straight to their face, as best I can tell, exactly where they're at spiritually. Now, I have met quite a few preachers that think every sermon should, uh, they should use the format of Matthew 23, that it should be a scathing, scalding, very harsh rebuke. And, and let me be clear, Jesus did this. So it's not out of the question. It's not wrong to do it. But you won't find Jesus doing this every single time that he preached. And we also need to be careful that as we preach, we recognize that sometimes you do need to put put your foot down. Sometimes you do need to lay it out straight and tell, just tell it like it is. There is a time for that, but make sure that you balance your preaching properly. Uh, verse number 29. Now this is, this is an interesting thing. I've never noticed this before. He says, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. We've seen this now several times. I've never noticed that this is the seventh time. There are actually seven times in the chapter that he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And you know the significance of the number seven. So I, I'll let you do with that as you please. Um, I think that the number is somewhat significant, that this is a complete and total rebuke of, of everything that they stood for. But even if you don't see anything in it, verse 29 is still powerful. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. A sepulcher is a, is a grave. Yeah, let me move this a little bit more for you. Um, so they were building these monuments, and this is well documented in Jewish history, and it's also something that has continued on even into church history, right? If you're dealing with the Eastern branch of the Orthodox Church or the Western branch, so you can think of the, the Greek Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church, either side, and even some Protestant churches they're very big on building monuments to people or to events even. Now, is Jesus rebuking the fact that they built a tomb or garnished a sepulcher? I don't think he's rebuking that necessarily. But he is going to use something about this, right? When they built these tombs, when they garnished these sepulchers, they would make the following statement, verse 30, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So they would adorn these grave sites and build these monuments and pretend as if, yeah, this is our way of saying, we, if we had lived in that time, we wouldn't have acted like those people, like our fathers, our forefathers. We wouldn't have done that. So I think that's what Jesus is really rebuking. Now, I don't think that Jesus is giving an endorsement on the building of monuments either, okay? However, let's, let's not quickly discount it because in the Old Testament, you do find some occasions where God says, take this or that and lay it up as a uh, memorial, right? The manna, he said, take some manna, put it in a bowl and it'll preserve forever and let it be a memorial. Take Aaron's rod that budded, put it in the... In the uh, sanctuary, let it be a memorial. So the, the tablets that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with in his hands, memorial. So there, there are some things where God says, keep that around and let it remind you of something. Even in the New Testament church, we have the Lord's Supper, we have baptism. They act as they are ordinances, which are memorials. Now, the building of a monument, I, I although I can't give you one verse that just completely... Uh, forbids it, I would caution against it. Even the people of Israel, you might remember in the book of Judges, there was a time when one of the tribes was about, you know, I think it was the Reubenites, 
They were going to go possess their land on the other side, Jordan. And as they were going, they built an altar and they called the name of it Ed, E-D, which I don't know why that's always struck me as strange. Just Ed. That's the altar Ed. And it was supposed to be a witness between the Reubenites and, uh, what is it? The Reubenites and the Gadites. That's it. The Manassites had people staying on in, in the uh, western section of, of Israel, so it wasn't an issue. But the Reubenites and Gadites, they needed proof that we are still part of Israel. So they built this altar as a memorial. And when the other Israelites, the, the ten main tribes, when they saw that, they were infuriated. They say, how dare you build this other altar? Now, once the Reubenites and Gadites explained why they were doing it, everything was fine. They went on about their business. But it shows how a monument can be a tricky thing. It can easily get into idolatry, make you think that you're something you're not. Right? Simply because we honored this great man, now that means we are as good as or as righteous as this great man or this great event. And that's, that's the danger of it. All right, so verse 31, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. So they're making the claim that if we had lived in the days of Isaiah, we wouldn't have killed Isaiah. If we lived in the days of Jeremiah, we would have been saying amen and falling in line with Jeremiah. And the same thing with every one of the prophets. And what they didn't realize is they were, they were not only doing the same thing that their fathers had done, but so much worse because it's not as if they're just persecuting a prophet. They are persecuting the prophet like unto Moses. They are doing exactly what their forefathers did and worse. So he says in verse 31, Jesus says, so you're witnesses. You, you, you admit it then that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. See, because they called them fathers in the days of our fathers. He said, so you admit it. You are related to them. Now remember, biblically speaking, when you call someone your father, you can mean that in a couple different ways. Maybe you're related by blood, right? A biological connection. And that's how they meant that statement, right? The biological heritage. However, Jesus took it and, and turned it around on them. They were followers. They were following along in the behavior of their forefathers. So to say we are their children is to say we are following the example that our ancestors have set. So he says, you admit it. You're followers of those people. So he comes into verse 32. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Go ahead and show your true colors. These people that he's talking to, that, are, that he's rebuking, they had already made up their minds that it was good and profitable for the nation of Israel that one man should die. And that one man, of course, is Jesus. So he says, go ahead. This is your time. Take your Bible. Flip over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 53. When he says, fill ye up then the measure, it's not as if Jesus is on board with their plan and commanding them to do this evil thing, but he realizes that at this point, the plan that they have concocted to have Jesus uh, eventually killed, they are going to accomplish that. Luke 22 verse 53 It says here, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So Jesus recognizes the time and the context in which he finds himself. And he knows these people are going to accomplish this evil deed. So go ahead. You might be saying one thing to my face or in front of the people, but I know it's in your heart and you're planning you're planning to do to me what your fathers did to all the prophets. Now, when you look, you can go back in the Old Testament and read how the people reacted to biblical prophets. Very interesting study. Very interesting. When one of God's men stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, right? Gives them that preacher finger and says, Thus saith the Lord. And then lays the rebuke, lays the warning, whatever the command is. That prophet just speaks straight, gets right to the point. Here's what you need to do. And you can look at what the people did constantly. They would say, don't prophesy unto this 
uh, unto us these, thus saith the Lord, these rough things. Give us smooth things. Tell us something positive. What did the false prophets preach? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They were scratching the people's ears, telling them what they wanted to hear. And over and over again, God's man would stand up and say, I don't care what the people want to hear. What God has told me to say, that's what I'm going to say. Now again, this doesn't justify saying it rudely. doesn't mean you got to be nasty about it, have a bad attitude. But you do need to simply communicate what God has said. Thus saith the Lord. There was an emphasis. You can go through all the prophets and check it. There was an emphasis on what has God said. All of them emphasize the scripture. All of them. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, you've cast the law of the Lord behind your backs. That was the accusation laid against the nation. Now, look at what's going on in these end times. Look at the reaction of people who profess to be God's children. Watch how they react to biblical preaching. Now, again, it's one thing if the preacher's being nasty and rude. I'm not, I'm not saying that's fine. But when a man stands up and preaches boldly, and points out biblically there are mistakes happening in the body of Christ. There are things we need to work on. Watch the reaction he gets from that. And you can see that the same attitude, the same spirit that existed with these forefathers that we're reading about and with this generation that crucified Christ, it's still around today. All right, Matthew 23, let's get verse number 33. And he says here, ye serpents, wow, you bunch of snakes. You realize the connection that he's making? You have to remember that in John chapter 8, verse 44, maybe you just want to write that verse down. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, ye are of your father, the devil. He said that to a group of Jews that were arguing with him. Ye are of your father, the devil. So it's not as if the Pharisees had never heard such language. Now he's calling them serpents. They get the connection. You're a, you're a child of the devil. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. Very poisonous, dangerous snake. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Whew. My, my, my. That's, that's strong preaching. That is strong preaching. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Um, please, guys, don't, don't allow this current generation, this end-time Christianity, to soften you when you want to preach about eternal things. Preach about heaven. Don't shy away from preaching about hell. Now, again, you won't find Jesus preaching about hell every time he pitched up in public. But Jesus preached about hell more than anybody in the Bible that we have on record. He preached about it, uh, I, if, I, if my count is right, eight different times we have records of it, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where he focuses in and mentions it specifically. I, I got invited to preach to a bunch of youth in, in uh, Gauteng one time, and I preached a message called The Hallways of Hell. At the end of that, I can't remember the exact numbers, to be honest, I wasn't counting. But I gave an invitation, and it was somewhere between 15 and 20 young people raised their hands and then came forward, and we ran out of altar workers. There weren't enough people to help and deal with the young folks down at the altar, some of them in tears, asking Christ to save them. Now, here these young people come to me afterwards, thank you for telling me this, I feel wonderful, man, it feels like a burden has been lifted, now I know I'm saved, and... Great response, but the next day, some of the other church leaders that had helped organize this, they were from some of the other bigger churches in town, they were present at the meeting. They had brought some of their youth. Some of their youth had gotten saved, but they said, never again will we have this man preach for us because how dare he scare people towards Christ. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. I wanted to say I'm sorry, but I won't apologize. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for preaching on a biblical topic. Hell is a real place. It's a real thing, and people need to be warned about it. 
Now, I do not think that being scared of hell should act as the foundation and substance of your entire Christian life, right? I don't, I, I get it. I realize that there's more to being saved than just being scared of hell. But you should be scared of hell. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. To, to fear the righteous judgment that God would pour out on you if you die in your sins, I think that falls into biblical wisdom, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think that's pretty consistent. Jesus asked the question almost rhetorically, I think, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Well, now, we know the answer to this. They needed to repent. They needed to accept the truth of what Jesus had said about himself and get in line with that. Hebrews 2, verse 3, just jot that verse down along with this. It works well. Um, matter of fact, I'm going to read it to you because it also talks about escaping. Hebrews 2, and verse number 3. It says here, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, the answer is you can't. And in this case, in Matthew 23, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Well, in the circumstance in which the scribes and Pharisees found themselves, these self-righteous, outwardly pretending hypocrites, these guys, they had already committed the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. They had said that Jesus was doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. They had gone so far into the pits of depravity that, and Jesus knew for that particular group, that generation of people that had gone that far, how are they going to get out of this mess? Now, with God, all things are possible. I will say that I think theoretically, theoretically, there might have been somebody in this crowd that hadn't committed that particular sin of blasphemy and maybe they would have realized their mistake and could have repented, right? Because that I think that's, on, that's still a possibility. But after you've gone this far for this long and hated Christ this much, it becomes very difficult to get out of that pit. Now, verse number 34, wherefore behold, this we're, we're switching gears now. This is the third point in the outline, the pronouncement upon the house. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. All right, let me point out something before we go further in that verse. I send unto you prophets. Prophets. I asked Yusuf Ismail, he's the Muslim that I debated a while back. I asked him about this verse once. I never did get an answer. Matter of fact, I need to I need to contact him again and follow up on this because I'd like to really know what he has to say. Uh, if I understand correctly, for a Muslim, he believes that Jesus came and Jesus was a mighty prophet. And then about 600 years later, Muhammad pitches up. And then Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. He's the last prophet. But how does that square with what Jesus said here? Jesus said, I send unto you prophets. Prophets. Who are they? Not one more prophet, right? It wasn't Jesus, then Muhammad. According to Jesus, there was Jesus and then several prophets. Now, I think it's quite clear biblically these prophets are Peter, James, John, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, all of these men. You read about them in the New Testament and they're mentioned as prophets, apostles and prophets, right? They, they serve that dual function. So I think it's clear biblically who these men were. And Jesus continues to call men out, even to this day, and send them out and say, you preach. The call to preach might happen in your life. I hope that it does. If you're listening tonight, I hope that you strongly consider and pray about whether or not God wants you to preach full time. It's something I think every man should pray about, at least pray about it. You can even tell the Lord, please don't call me, but at least pray about it. So I think that Jesus still sends people out like this. But from a Muslim perspective, I think this would be a tricky verse for them. How would they deal with this? Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. Now that word wise men, the Greek behind it, 
we still look at that. Yeah. The Greek behind it is Sophia or a sophist, where we get the word a sophist, uh, which is a philosopher, a philosopher, wise men. So we have down through church history, and even today, we have Christian philosophers. Now be careful about this, however, right? This is not, we don't take the world's uh, definition of philosophy, but a wise man biblically. That is, he recognizes what God has revealed and, and the wisdom of God's plan and then makes that known to the people, right? So it's not as if we're approaching this like Socrates and Aristotle and trying to adopt their philosophy and fit it into Christianity. It's not that type of thing. Wise men and scribes. Now, that's interesting. Why would Jesus be sending scribes to the people? Because he knows he's about to die. He's got about one week left from, from this point on. And Jesus knows that these apostles are going to start writing things. And they're going to need scribes to, to make these documents properly and then make copies of the documents. And this tells me that God, down through the ages, not only in the apostolic days, right, in the book of Acts, not only in the first century, but even unto this day, that these offices, these callings, we need people who are going to preach. We need people, wise men that understand the plan of God and can teach. We need scribes, people who can write, make copies, publish, right? Printing houses. It's made, it's made this job a lot easier. But for the first 1,500 years of the church, we needed scribes, men that were professionally trained to copy the Bible, and other important documents and make sure that the people of God had access to them. So I find it interesting that Jesus took time to mention scribes. He knew the written word would be important. Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Now, kill, uh, we know that, right, Acts chapter 7, they stoned Stephen to death. There were other times that the Jews, they Paul persecuted Christians and, and had some of them put to death. But the Jews did not directly crucify anyone. But just like they did with Jesus, they would manipulate the Roman government into doing their dirty work for them. So they would lay accusations against various Christians, maybe accuse them of having uh, tried to commit insurrection, much like they did Jesus. This guy doesn't pay taxes etc., etc., and then the Romans would crucify them. Some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. There was a case of this happening. And persecute them from city to city. He says, you guys know, in Matthew, what was it, chapter 21, Jesus gave them a parable, and in chapter 22, wasn't it? Both of them. How God would send out servants and how the husbandmen would beat the servants, kill the servants. That's what the fathers had done. Now, this generation said, if we had lived in those days, we wouldn't have done it. Jesus is saying, guys, you're, the, you're cut from the same cloth. You are their children, not only by blood, but also by behavior. You're going to do exactly what they did and more. I'm going to send you other prophets, and you're going to treat them just as you've treated me. Verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, or Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. All right, that all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Wow. Now he goes all the way back to the very first man, righteous man that was killed for his righteousness. Right? Abel was killed because he was more righteous than Cain. So it starts there. He says, from that time, there has been one group that is guilty of killing these righteous prophets. Now, Abel, we do consider him a prophet because he, even being dead, he yet speaks. His blood prophesies. It preaches a message. So Abel has a message that he declares. And then all the way up to Zacharias, who there are a couple options who this Zacharias might be. Uh, some see him as mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 to 22. Now, there you'll find that the Zacharias there, he's the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada. Barachias means bless the Lord. Jehoiada means praise the Lord. So in Hebrew, they're very close. So some people... 
believe that we're dealing with the same man because we know that one man can have sometimes two, three, even four names. So this Zacharias, maybe he's the son of Barachias, who is also known as Jehoiada, and that'll fit uh, with 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Other people take this to be Zacharias of the book of Zechariah. And if you look at Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1, I'm just going to read it for you. It says, In the eighth month and the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. So there we have Berechiah mentioned. So if you're honestly, I see a good argument for both, but I kind of lean towards the Zechariah that we read about in the book of Zechariah there. However, the other one in 2 Chronicles, you read about him being slain in the temple. So there's a good argument for either one. Either way, if you have it in 2 Chronicles, that's the last book in the Jewish Bible. So it makes a nice bookend. You have Genesis with Abel, and then Zechariah in 2 Chronicles. So it's, he, he, Jesus is simply mentioning the entire Old Testament. But Zechariah, as we know it from Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, Right. He comes at the end of what we have as the Old Testament. Not the very end, mind you, but time-wise, he's after the uh, captivity. So there's either way, we're dealing with something that we go from one extreme to the other as far as time goes. And he's saying, guys, all the righteous blood that's been shed from this prophet to this prophet, whichever one it is, it's all going to come. The payment for that, the destruction, the punishment, the woe, it's going to happen to this generation. Now, it's not that the other generations didn't pay for it. They did to a certain extent. But the fullness of God's wrath is going to be poured out on this generation for what they did. And you can see why. These are the ones that were guilty of crucifying the Son of God. So it makes sense that God would wait until this particular time to pour out his, the full amount of his wrath, the full measure of his wrath, for all the righteous blood that had been shed down through the generations. Now, notice at the end of verse 35, it says, Whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Ye. It, it, he's making it sound as if they, that generation of hypocritical Jews, that they were guilty of Abel to Zacharias and all the righteous prophets in between. How could that be possible? Because Jesus is speaking to them as one corporate group that these hypocritical, God-rejecting Bible-denying, beautiful on the outside, empty on the inside, that group, he views it as one corporate group. And he says that group has been in existence since Cain and it's existed and lasted up until the days of Christ preaching right there. He says this group is guilty of doing these things. So that's why I think he includes them, the people standing right in front of him, as being guilty of all those crimes of the past. All right, so verse number 36. Let's give you a few more verses here. Verse 36, he says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So God pours out the fullness of his wrath and destroys the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel for, for this particular crime of shedding innocent blood. Now again, other generations have been punished, but in smaller measures. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. Now watch this carefully. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Right, two big lessons you really need to see in this. Number one, Jesus takes credit for having sent the prophets of the Old Testament. The righteous prophets that were killed by this wicked, hypocritical group, right, that's existed since the days of Cain. Jesus said, I have tried to gather you. I have reached out to you. I, I'm the one that sent these prophets. I did it. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, you know that it's Jehovah, right? It's the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, that is sending these prophets and trying to gather the people. Jesus now takes credit for it, which I think is an extremely powerful claim for his deity. So again, if, I, if you don't mind me bringing in the Muslim aspect of this, 
they have sometimes a Muslim, well, many times Muslims will say, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me? Well, he doesn't come right out and say it here. He, nowhere does he. Nowhere, why should he? Why do, why do we have to have that sentence coming out of his mouth? Right? We don't have to have that particular combination of words, but did he ever claim any sort of divinity? Did he claim to be deity? I think he did in this verse. He claims to have been doing this throughout human history. Now notice another very important thing at the end of the verse. Jesus says, I've been trying to gather you and ye would not. The will of God can be resisted. The grace of God can be resisted. You can reject the counsel of the Lord. Now this goes directly against Calvinistic teaching that if God determines for a certain thing to be done, it has to be done. And God, listen, the will of God is for all men to be saved. God wanted the nation of Israel to be gathered back under his wings, but they would not. This matches perfectly with Acts 7, verse 51. Ye uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye stiff-necked, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. So the Holy Spirit, the work of grace, it can be resisted. I think this verse speaks loudly for the idea of free will also. Verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's empty. This house that they were so proud of, they made such a big deal of it. Oh, what happened to my verses? I'm looking over here. That's still there. Do you guys still see the verses? They disappeared for a minute. Have they been going on and off the whole time? You guys let me know. Anyway, we're almost done here, so let's finish up. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So they, for the longest time, this was the crown jewel in the nation of Israel. Look at this beautiful temple. As they marched through the wilderness with this tabernacle, what a glory it was. Then when Solomon builds the temple, people, kings and queens would come from far countries to see this magnificent building. Now Herod has built, rebuilt this temple, and it is a beautiful structure. But as we've seen in this chapter, they're emphasizing the gold and they're forgetting the God who lived in that, whose presence was manifested in that temple. That's a better way to say it. And God's presence was manifested in the Holy of Holies. That's where that consuming fire would manifest itself to the high priest once a year when that high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. God's presence could be found above the mercy seat. And now Jesus is telling them, your house is going to be as empty as you are. Your house is left unto you desolate. It should have been this great spectacle, but we're going to tear it down. We're going to see in chapter 24 how Jesus prophesies that. This, by the way, I want this to linger in the back of your minds for a few weeks because when we get into Jesus dying, it's going to talk about the veil of the temple being ripped open from the top to the bottom, and the Jews were able to see inside the holiest of all, and no man was supposed to be able to do that. But by ripping it open and showing them that they can look in and they wouldn't die, that's proving to them the presence of God was gone. So the veil of the temple being ripped open, it actually confirms what Jesus is, is prophesying here, that the house is left unto them desolate. Verse 39, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So that's, this is it for Jesus' public ministry. Beyond this, if, if my memory serves, and I'm, we'll find out if, if, uh, if I've missed something as we go. I'm fairly certain, however, that's, that's it for his public ministry, speaking to crowds like this with Pharisees, scribes, and multitudes gathered in the temple. From here on out, he focuses just on his disciples. And we do have some of the conversations and teachings, the Last Supper, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us that. But John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 really focuses in on what Jesus said after this final, these final words to the general public. He says, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That is a messianic statement. That's something you say to the Messiah. So he's saying to this group of Jews, the next time 
you see me, you will accept me. And this, this matches with what Paul taught in Romans 11, when all Israel will be saved, right? The blindness is only in part. One day they will come round. And in the book of Revelation, we also read that Israel will. There's a remnant that will turn to the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, there will be a group of Jews ready to welcome him and say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they will accept Jesus as their Messiah then. Okay, that brings us to the close of chapter 23. I think this is a good place to stop for the evening. You guys let me know. I'm going to check now if we have any questions. I hope this has helped to have the verses up the whole time. You guys, please, I would appreciate your feedback. If there's anything I can do differently during the live streams, <laughs> outside of actually unmuting the microphone when I start, I think that would help, right? But if there's anything else, you guys let me know. Well, I'm just taking a second to check the uh, questions. Can you explain the different levels of hell? Zinkley, that's a great question. Um, no, I can't, actually. <laughs> I can only... I'll give you a couple verses that you can think on, but um, I, I cannot describe to you like level one is this much punishment, level two is the next amount, that I'm not sure of. As I mentioned, I think, what was it last week when we talked about the greater damnation, I, I'm really not sure how damnation gets worse. All I know is that Jesus did say it and that it does seem to be grounded in some, how would I say this? some indirect reasoning, because there are different levels of rewards, right? It would make sense that there are different levels of punishment. So that, that seems to be consistent. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, no, no, 32. I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 32 and, yeah, that's it. Verse 22. Deuteronomy 32, 22. Let me type it in and see if that helps. Oh, where am I at? just so you have it. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, just for the sake of time, Zinlay, I, I, I won't go through the other verses, but here you read the lowest hell. So there is actually another verse that talks about the lower hell and then low, the low parts of the earth. So it seems to be there's low, lower, lowest. At the very least here, we're reading about the lowest hell. Now, that doesn't really go very far, though, to answering the kind of question that you're asking, I think, the different levels of hell. So I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be much help there. Uh, Christoph, good question. Is Jehovah a biblical name for God? Yes, it is. Uh, you find it in the Old Testament on, on a few occasions. You find a shortened version of it in the book of Psalms. Uh, where it says his name is Jah, J-A-H. Um, I'm looking at Psalm 83, verse 18, where the name Jehovah is spelled out. Um, looking quickly for the, the name Jah. It's also right around that same, same part of the Bible. But forgive me, I'm not... It's slipping me where exactly that's at. It's right around this middle section of the book of Psalms. His name is Jah. Um, oh, there it is. Psalm 68, verse 4. He rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah. Uh, however, I, I will admit, you know, there's a conversation that has taken place for some time. Should it be Jehovah? Should it be Yahweh? And I really think it's a bit of semantics because I, I, don't, I don't have any problems with the, with the name Yahweh. I don't. It's not common to me. I haven't used it very much. But Jehovah and Yahweh are transliterations. It's is that the right way to say it? I think, I think it is. It's a phonetic spelling. Uh, the name that we, the name of God, right, doesn't have any vowel points to it. So when God, when Moses asked God, what's your name? The name that Moses wrote down didn't have vowel points. So it, it became unpronounceable. And Jews to this day will not pronounce it. They will not write God on, on paper. I'll show you what they'll write. They'll do this. You can look in the comment section. They put G-D. They, they're afraid to write the name of God, which isn't necessarily that bad of a thing. But what people have done to arrive at Jehovah, they take the consonants, right, the Hebrew consonants, 
And then they take the Hebrew word for Lord, like as in master, capital L, little O, little R, little D. And they take the vowels from the word Adonai, which is Lord in Hebrew, and they plug those vowels into the consonants that you have in the Tetragrammaton, in what we know as the name of Jehovah or Yahweh. So when you plug those in, now you can pronounce that name. But as we know from Afrikaans, the J, right, can make the, in English we say J, but in Afrikaans it's Y. So Jehovah, Yahweh. It's actually two different ways of pronouncing the same spelling as best I can tell. Those Hebrew consonants borrowing the vowels from Adonai. So I hope that answers your question, Christoph. That's usually when people are asking about it, that's the direction they're going. So let me know if there was something else you wanted to know about that. But I appreciate the questions. All right, guys, if that's it, I'm gonna have a word of prayer. We'll close for the evening. Uh, if you do have something else you want me to follow up on, I will check right before I um, sign off. So please feel free to slip something in while you have a chance. All right, Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity to teach, the opportunity to look at all these things, and uh, please continue to guide us into all truth. Lord, it's not as if we can just have a, have a, a year of Bible school or a one evening of Bible school and then we have all we need uh, as far as understanding goes. Continue to teach us, God, and help us to put the emphasis where it needs to be. Help us, Lord, to, to love you, to love judgment, mercy, faith, to to really concentrate on what you think is important. And Lord, help us to cleanse first that which is on the inside. Please fix our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.